Once again, if you have your Bible, let's go to the book of Genesis. And uh, chapter 3, I want to read just one verse again from the portion that we read earlier. Look with me now once again, please, at Genesis chapter 3, verse 24. So he drove, that is the Lord, drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubim, and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Let's pray we'll ask God's blessing on the message today. Father, we thank you for your blessings to us this past week, and we thank you now for the privilege of gathering around the Word of God. We thank you for the freedom of the Word of God that we have here in America. Thank you also, Lord, that uh, we have freedom of assembly, and uh, perhaps during this time in which we have not been able to meet together because of the coronavirus, that privilege and that right uh, of being the gathered church has become even more precious. I pray that it has. I pray that we will always understand the blessing and wisdom of God in the church and in our gathering together. And I pray that we would not be like some who forsake this gathering of ourselves together as the manner of some is. So thank you for each person who's listening today. I pray, Father, that you would just use the word of God. I pray, oh God, that if I have anyone here today listening who doesn't know Jesus Christ as personal Savior. Oh, Father, would you use this message to reach out to that person, to touch their heart, to reveal to them their lost estate, but the hope that we have in Jesus Christ and the free invitation to come. And I pray, oh God, that you would just work in such a person to draw them to yourself. For each of us today who knows Jesus Christ, may once again our hearts just be filled up with praise and adoration because of the marvel and fullness of the plan of redemption as we see it in the Bible. Thrill and enrapture our hearts with that again today. And I'll thank you for it in Jesus' holy and wonderful name. Amen. Well, this morning I want to continue with our series just begun last week entitled Trees with a Message. I pointed out to you last week that God doesn't waste anything in his word. Even the flora, fauna, and geography of the Bible, and any number of other things that perhaps you can think about, all are invested by God with a message for us. And so it shouldn't be surprising that we find trees in the Bible that have a message. Uh, you recall that in this Trees with a Message series, I've sort of uh, delineated two categories. You have, first of all, three trees that are in a category all by themselves. That is to say, they are absolutely unique. And I've entitled those towering trees. We looked at the first last week, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There is, of course, the tree of Calvary. We'll get to that in another message. But this week, we're going to be looking at the tree of life. Then, of course, you have other trees in the Bible, just simply telling trees. That is, trees that have a message that it will be sort of interesting to see how the Bible uses that and how that message comes out. But that'll be in days to come. Right now, we want to look at the tree of life. Now, you remember when we began this last week and we looked at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, I styled that so that we could concentrate on a particular thought, the tree of probation. And indeed it was, because God put them in the garden. He's expressly prohibited them from partaking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, even though he had invited them to be free partakers of every other tree which was in the, midst of, which, which was in the garden. There is, however, another tree that was there in the midst of the garden, and it too is one of those towering trees, and this is the tree of life, and if we're looking for a way to style the tree of life, then we must call this the tree of paradise. This is a, a name 
well chosen. I don't call it that just because of the popular use of paradise referring to the Garden of Eden. I call it that because that's precisely what it is. And later in the message, when we get to Revelation chapter 2 and verse 7, you'll see that that's exactly what the Bible calls it as well, the tree of paradise. At any rate, there is something quite by way of contrast that's interesting to note at the beginning. Between, that is, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of probation, and the tree of life, which is uh, the tree of, uh, of, 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 of promise and of paradise. And that is simply this, that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, once we get out of the book of Genesis, in fact, once we get past these opening chapters in Genesis, it vanishes from the pages of Scripture. We never see another reference to it. We certainly see a reference to the fallout of man's decision to disobey God. That's a theme all throughout the Bible. But the tree of life stands <clears throat> in contrast to this in that we find it in the beginning and then we find it at the end. What is so very interesting is we have references in Genesis chapter 2 and in Genesis chapter 3. We find no other references in the Old Testament. Even in the early parts and throughout the epistles in the New Testament, we find no references. However, when we get to the book of Revelation, which of course is the culmination of the Bible and the finishing touch, as it were, then in chapter 2 and verse 7, and then in chapter 22, verses 2 and 14, we find again the tree of life. And it is these sequential references to the tree of life in the Bible that really enable us to fathom its significance as the tree of paradise and to tell the story of the tree of life, which is just what we're going to do this morning. I have four thoughts to unfold that for you this morning. And the first one I've entitled this, Paradise Offered. And for this, what we need to do actually is go back to the chapter 2 verses that we read earlier. I'd like to point out something to you there. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 16 says this, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Now notice this, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. And then, of course, the only exception to that is given in verse 17, where he says, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God puts that off limits to them. Now this is quite interesting because it's important for us to realize that the tree of life was never put off limits to man. In fact, it was God's intention all along from the beginning for man to be able to partake of the tree of life. And so when we think about what the significance of this in the Bible is, we realize that it's both literal and symbolic. That is to say that it speaks of the life that God intended for Adam and Eve to have. Some would even go so far as to use, instead of the word symbolic, the word sacramental. Now, I know many times in our churches we're afraid of that word. We, we get the idea of, uh, of, of not the ordinances, but the sacraments and the, the, the false teaching of some churches that the sacraments are invested with some grace in the sense that as we're partakers of them, they're a means of grace to us. And in the sense in which they mean them, that's just not so. We don't become better in the presence of God by partaking of the communion for entrance, for, 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 for example. But if you simply use the word sacramental in this sense, to recognize that in that tree you have a physical means to a spiritual transaction, 
then symbolic, sacramental, whichever word you would choose to use, helps us to really understand what's going on here. And so what is clear is that God did not intend man to eat of the other tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but he most certainly did intend ultimately for man to partake of the tree of life. That was his intention all along. We find this in chapter 2, verse 16, of every tree in the garden thou mayest freely eat. You know something that's interesting that Eve, Eve certainly understood this. Over in chapter 3, when the serpent enters the scene and the temptation begins, and in the end of verse number 1, the serpent says to Eve, Yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every, notice the word every, tree of the garden. Notice Eve's response. She says, and it says, and the woman said unto the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. So she certainly understood that there was only one tree that was put off limits. And by inference, and certainly what it says in Genesis 6, 16, when God said of every tree of the, the garden, thou mayest freely eat, this of course includes the tree of life. And so when we think of it symbolic thought, now once again, I point out it's a literal tree, but we think about the symbolism that's involved in it. The life, the tree of life, it's, it's called that on purpose. We understand that this full life, life in the sense of eternal life, is what God intended for man all along. And just as God's provisional, the provisional goodness and holiness that man had until he fell in the garden would have been confirmed had he obeyed God, so the eternal life and the continuance in paradise that was represented by the garden was intended to be theirs. And certainly I think you see this if you look at Genesis chapter 3, God makes the comment here, it says, Behold, the man has become, this is verse 22, Behold, the man has become of one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and live forever. So you see, the tree was the physical means to a spiritual end. God intended to convey not just physical life, which Adam and Eve already enjoyed, not just spiritual life, which before the fall they certainly had, as is evidenced by their communion and fellowship with God. They were created with that capacity, and in the beginning they certainly enjoyed that. But then God intended to make that eternal. God intended to make the bliss, the paradise of the Garden of Eden, and the fullness of life, in the sense not just of spiritual life or physical life, but eternal life. He intended to give that freely to them. It was like every other of God's good gifts. He intended them to have it. You know, before we leave this, I just quickly want to make the application that there can never be any doubt as to God's goodness. And any time we are tempted to doubt God's goodness, then just as in the Garden of Eden, it shows the work of the tempter. That's precisely what he did to Eve. He came with the suggestion that somehow God was not good in putting off limits the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And to this very day, God, the, the evil one, seems to want to bring that temptation. Of course, here's the thing, folks. When the winds are fair 
and the seas are following, and everything's going well in life, we never really doubt God's goodness. We never really think about it. But sometimes when we fall into difficulties and problems, then we fall prey to this temptation. It goes against everything that we see here in the beginning to be true about God, and that is revealed in his word that God is a good God. He gives us every good and perfect gift, and he has given us all things richly to enjoy. God always wants to give us his best. And we have to realize, as it says in Psalm 84 and verse 11, for the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. If it's something that God doesn't see fit to give us, it must not be a good thing because God desires only our good. And all things work together for good to them that love God and to those who are the call according to his purpose. I found interesting a story from Corey Ten Boom from her prison experiences that she told afterwards that I think really makes this point. She says this, she says, often I have heard people say how good God is. We prayed that it would not rain for our church picnic and look at the lovely weather. Yes, God is good when he sends good weather, but God was also good when he allowed my sister, sister Betsy to starve to death before my eyes in a German concentration camp. She goes on, I remember one occasion when I was very discouraged there. Everything around us was dark, and there was darkness in my heart. And I remember telling Betsy that I thought that God had forgotten us. No, Corey, said Betsy. He has not forgotten us. Remember his word. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. And Corey went on to conclude, there is an ocean of God's love available. There is plenty for everyone. May God grant you never to doubt that victorious love, whatever the circumstances. And I would simply say, may God grant to each of us that we might never doubt his goodness, whether the days are balmy or whether the days are difficult. Still, God is good. God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. Well, paradise was offered. We see that in chapter 2, verses 16 through 17. But now let's notice that paradise was lost. This is kind of what we looked at in particular last week. But in chapter 22, uh, 3, verses 22 through 24, that is really brought out. Paradise is lost. Now I have just two thoughts that I want to use to develop this. Paradise was lost forever in terms of human effort. And how can you not gather this. First of all, that paradise was lost by the expressions that God uses, because if you look in verse 23, it says, therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden. So he sent him forth from the garden, and chapter, or the next verse, verse 24, is even stronger, so he drove out the man. So Paradise was definitely lost, but my point now is, is it was lost forever insofar as any human effort, insofar as any ability of Adam and Eve to find their way back by their own efforts into the paradise which they had now lost. It was absolutely and utterly impossible to achieve. And how do we know this? Well, you just look at the symbolism or you look at what was there. There's symbolism, but there's also the literal truth. The cherubim. Now, if you look at the verse, and you may be wondering about this, our version says cherubims, but the Hebrew cherubim is already plural. The singular of it is cherub, so it's sort of like a, a, a double ending. We don't need the S. 
but the cherubim. So there was more than one, and these cherubim were the supernatural guardians of God's holiness. If you go and look into the Old Testament, you'll find that the veil, when the tabernacle was erected, when the veil uh, was woven, there were cherubim on that veil. They, they were the right there to protect the entrance between the holy place and the most holy place where God's presence were, was. They barred the way except for the high priest once in a year, and then not without blood. And then when you go a little further, you find out that the cherubim were also in the Holy of Holies itself, on either end of the mercy seat. There was a, a cherub, and they stretched out their wings and, 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 and covered this. These were the guardians of God's holiness. So God places the guardians of his holiness there, supernatural beings. There's no way you're going to defeat a supernatural being. But they had flaming swords, and so no one can pass through fire. And the sword itself, whatever that was meant to convey, Adam and Eve certainly understood there was absolutely no way back. Now think about this, folks, because they had taken it upon themselves to think that their wisdom was superior to God's, that God in placing the tree off limits really didn't have to do that. And they asserted themselves to be wiser than God, and they inserted themselves not to need God. And basically, as I pointed out last week, all of this invo involved the representation of a lifestyle that they now entrusted themselves to be able to make themselves happy instead of God who had put them in, the, in a place of perfect bliss. Well, could they get back to that now by their own efforts? Absolutely not. But I would hasten to point out the tree of life was forever lost, never to be regained, absolutely impossible through any human effort. But it's not lost to God's grace. Do you not see with me here the hint of the mercy and grace of God, even in the language that's described? You notice in verse number 23, it says to till the ground. He sent him forth to till the ground. Even though a part of the curse that we read about in verses 17 through 19 of this chapter, in sorrow shalt thou eat of it, that is the ground, all the days of thy life. In the sweat of thy brow shalt thou eat bread. And we realize that now it involved a toil that it had never involved before. In fact, let me show you a reference to this. If you turn over to chapter 5 and verse 29, that exact word is used where it says, and he called his name Noah, saying, this same shall comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord hath cursed. He sent him forth to till it, and he sent him forth to toil in the tilling of it. But you know, beloved, he could have sent him forth to torment. God would have been perfectly just in doing that, but instead of sending man directly to, to, to perdition as a result of his disobedience and of his sin, which he justly deserved, there is even in the hint of the language, no, not torment, because we know that hell is such a place as that. You've but to look in the New Testament when Jesus confronted the demons and they, they said to Jesus, art thou come to torment us before the time? Or you could go to Luke chapter 16, verse 23, where the rich man, being in hell, lifted up his eyes in torments, it says in that verse. 
And of course, Peter has a reference in 2 Peter chapter 4 to the angels that are reserved in chains of darkness unto the judgment of that last day. Torment is what's reserved for the lost and to the damned forever. But God withheld that judgment because God intended to show grace. And in that subtlety, we see it. But there's something that's more than subtle. There's something that's rather explicit, even though it's in latent form, and it's the promise. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 is the first reference in the Bible to the gospel. God speaks it actually as he's speaking to the servant. Look at that verse now. The Lord God said unto the woman, I'm sorry, that's verse 13. We want verse 15. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, but thou shalt bruise his heel. Satan through leading and tempting man into disobedience hobbled and crippled humankind. We are fallen creatures. But do you notice that God unilaterally, no one compelled God to do this. This is God's pure and free grace, promises to send the seed of the woman and to crush through that seed, which of course we know ultimately is the Lord Jesus Christ, to crush, to defeat sin, Satan, and the grave, so that paradise might be restored or regained. Beloved, I emphasize again, there is no way back through human effort, but there is a way back through God's free and sovereign grace. I cannot ask you to exult in any higher subject that God completely, out of the abundance of his own freedom, there is no compulsion, there is no reason for God to do this except that he determines to show grace. And I point out to me and remind myself today and to you that there is absolutely no reason why any of us should be given anything but judgment and everlasting torment, but God in free grace bestowed upon us the gift of redemption and the way back and the knowledge of eternal life, not through our efforts, for it is not by works of righteousness we have done, but for by grace are we saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Oh, hallelujah. Oh, praise God for his full free grace that he has demonstrated and that we see right here in this promise that was given to Adam and Eve. Well, we need to move along. So we have seen paradise offered in chapter 2, verses 16 through 17. We have seen paradise lost in chapter 3, verses 22 through 24. But now you see, let's turn over to the book of the Revelation, because as I said, in the sequential references that we find to the tree of life in the Bible, the story is fully told. So turn over to the book of Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2, and look with me now at verse number seven, because our third thought about the tree of life today, or this tree of paradise, is that paradise was promised. So in verses one through seven of chapter two, you're into the chapter two and chapter three part where you have the messages to the seven churches. And this is the opening one in verses one through seven to the church which is at Ephesus. We don't have time to read or go into any of that. I only want you to see what he promises to the church at the end. Verse number seven says this, Revelation chapter two, verse seven. 
He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches, plural, even though this is to the church at Ephesus. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life. Here's a promise. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life. Now notice this, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So you see now why I call it the tree of paradise, because it is now in the paradise of God, not the earthly one, which the Garden of Eden simply meant to foreshadow and be typical of, but the heavenly one. And Jesus Christ promises to the church of Ephesus, to the overcomers, that he will give them to eat of the tree, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Well, we shouldn't be surprised by this, because it's, it follows logically from everything we've seen. Paradise was offered. It was fully God's intent for man to, to, for man to have this. But paradise was lost, yet there was the promise there that it would one day be restored. So it shouldn't be surprising that this tree resurfaces in Scripture because God makes good on every promise, beloved. And he promised in this to the church at Ephesus. Now, I don't want you to take a misunderstanding from the fact that it says, to him that overcometh. Because sometimes I think we look at that maybe in the popular sense in which we tend to use that word, and we think to ourselves, well, this must be a special category of believer, uh, people that have an unusual level of victory in their lives. But you know something, when you study John's writings, where most of the occurrence of, occurrences of this uh, verb, to overcome, are, you find that that's not what John is talking about at all. John is talking about a definite sense in which it is true of every believer. Every believer is an overcomer through Jesus Christ. But don't take my word for it. Let's just look at some of the other places that John uses this. So, for example, if you have your Bible there, go back to 1 John. You're only going a couple of pages. But if you go back to 1 John chapter 5 and verse 4, now I want you to notice who are the overcomers. Because the Bible is not going to be inconsistent with itself, and certainly John is not going to be inconsistent with himself. He says in 1 John 5, 4, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. Who are the overcomers? They are those who are born of God. Verse number 5, Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth? Who are the overcomers? They are those who are born of God. They are those who, are, uh, who, are, who believe in Jesus. These are saved people. And if we were to actually go back to the book of the Revelation and turn over to chapter number 12, again, of course, you see, this is all in the in the concept of John. This is all what he means is when he's talking about overcomers. Chapter 12, verse 11, tells us this. And they overcome. This is the tribulation saints. It says, and they overcame him, that is, the evil one, by the word, by the, rather, the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and that they loved not their lives unto the death. Now, what have we got when we put these three verses together? Who are the overcomers? The overcomers are those who are born of God. The overcomers are those who believe in Jesus. The overcomers are those who are washed in the blood of the Lamb. So you see why I say that when John is talking about the overcomers, and when Jesus Christ gives this promise at the end of his message to the church, which is at Ephesus, you notice it says, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. Because to every believer, to everyone who believes in Jesus, 
who is born again, who is washed in the blood of the Lamb. There is the promise of God to be given to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And in the sense that that tree is meant to symbolize eternal life, and that you and I have trusted Jesus Christ as personal Savior, in that sense, in that spiritual sense, we have already partaken of the tree of life, and we have the eternal life that God has promised to us. Won't it be wonderful one day, beloved, to look forward to when paradise is not just promised, the beginning of which we can realize in this life, but paradise is also regained. And that is my fourth thought for us as we close the message today. Paradise regained. Now we go to the book of Revelation chapter 22 and verse 2. Notice with me, Revelation 22 verse 2. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life which bare twelve manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations? So what do we find here? In this last scene, we're actually moving now past the church age, which is represented in chapters 2 and 3. This life on earth is past, and what is it to which believers go? Jesus said, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Where is that? The Father's house. And so when we come to Revelation chapter 22, this is the description of the eternal state. This is the new Jerusalem. This is where you and I will be with God for all eternity. And what do we find? The tree of life. And in fact, in verse number uh, two, it says in the midst and on either side, the tree of life, which is there, which symbolizes that paradise has been regained. And then he goes on in verse two to describe the incredible variety that's involved, that the tree of life each month bears fruit. <laughs> Beloved, this is only just a hint. This is only just a, some idea of the fact that that earthly Eden was simply the shadow. This is the reality to which God always intended to bring us, having made us his people through the shed blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And now God has brought us to this place. I'm thinking of eternity, either when we are with the Lord or when Jesus comes back and takes us there, that new Jerusalem, and, and to think what the bliss and blessing of that place must have been. I mean, if we go back and we think about the Garden of Eden and, 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 and think about what that was, our minds are boggled only at what the real, ultimate paradise will be. But the tree of life is there. There is bountiful and beneficial supply in that place. It, it's never barren. It never fails to have fruit. Every month, 
a different type of fruit, but it all means to signify the incredible variety and blessing that awaits us in this place. And then we look at verse number 14, and we find that the tree of life is not only fully and freely available in paradise, in the new Jerusalem, but verse number 14 says, blessed are they that do his commandments and that they may have right to the tree of life and that they may enter in through the gates of the city. For without, verse 15, are dogs, sorcerers, whoremongers, murderers, idolaters, and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. So in this place, the new Jerusalem, the eternal paradise and dwelling place of the people of God, the tree of life is not only available full and free for us, but we are granted, it is our right through the blood of Jesus Christ, it is our right to enjoy that fullness of life that God always intended us to have, which when we trust Christ on this earthly scene, we are made partakers of fully and freely in the sense of salvation. But when we are glorified in eternity and in the new Jerusalem, we will fully understand the riches of paradise, the fullness of life, that God always intended us to have. You know, it's interesting to me when you look at the beginning of chapter 22, verse 1, there's a notation there. It tells us that in the New Jerusalem, in the true paradise, there's also a river. You go back to Genesis chapter 2, you find there was a river in the garden, and it watered the trees. There's a river here too. And he says in verse 1, he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. And so just as that river was in the garden that was on the earth and allowed the life to be lush and full, so there is a river, but this is a spiritual river that is in the sense that this is the river of life. Its waters are life-giving. Just as Jesus promised to the, to, the, to the woman at the well, that it'll be in you a well of water springing up unto eternal life. And so I go back to what I mentioned to you again as we just summarize all of these points, that paradise was offered, paradise was lost, paradise was promised as we see in Revelation 2, 7. And then the full scene, the final scene, the New Jerusalem, Revelation 22, verses 2 and 14, paradise is regained. And as I was saying last week, you know, Milton had this right. John Milton, who wrote Paradise Lost. And you remember I introduced us. I'm sure there's not a person of us who's had an English class that hasn't heard about Paradise Lost. But I, I reminded you of some of the details of this last week, that Milton wrote this epic poem, and, and of course it depicts uh, the fall of, of man and Adam's sin and transgression. But Milton did go on. Four years later, in 1671, Paradise Regained appeared. It too is an epic poem. There's kind of an interesting story behind this, which scholars debate about whether or not this was actually the catalyst in Milton's writing Paradise Regained. This is the second one, <clears throat> Paradise Regained. Or whether he had intended to write it all along, we don't know. Scholars will go back and forth about this, but um, 
it concerns, this anecdote concerns a man <clears throat> by the name of Thomas Elwood. Now, Milton and Elwood were acquaintances, at least from their days as students. They had studied together. Well, Elwood, upon reading Paradise Lost, is said to have remarked to Milton, Thou hast said much here of Paradise Lost, but what hast thou to say of Paradise Found? And it's sort of interesting that not too terribly long after that, Milton came out with Paradise Regained. He had it right all along, folks. Paradise Lost, Paradise Regained. And this is the tree of life. And do you know, when we think about that river of life, we read verse 17 in the chapter. And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come, and let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. You see, my friend, that's a transaction that needs to be done in this life. For you to be a part of eternity with the people of God, for you to be welcome and inhabitant, so to speak, of the new Jerusalem, you must have partaken of the tree of life in the symbolic sense, partaken of the water of life in the symbolic sense, that you receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and are born again. And the Spirit and the Bride say, come. The Spirit of God may be reaching out to you today. You may not know Jesus Christ as personal Savior. All of this that I've been talking about, paradise, you have no sure and certain hope of that because you don't know that you've ever really trusted Christ as your personal Savior. But the Spirit and the Bride say, come. The Spirit of God may be urging you to this today. I know I am certainly, as part of the Bride, that is the people of God urging you to this today. If you've never come to the Lord Jesus, if you've never confessed to him that you are a sinner who needs to be saved, that just as Adam and Eve in that garden, you have by transgression fallen and that you are justly deserving of the condemnation of God. If you come to him that way in repentance, reaching out in faith to receive Jesus Christ, asking him to save your soul, the Bible promises, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, Romans 10, 13. This is to partake of the, of the water of life. Let him that is a thirst come and drink of the water of life freely. Oh, my friend, I urge you to do this today. And if, as I'm sure is true for most of you listening today, you know Jesus Christ as personal Savior, Will you not once again rejoice with me in the fullness of God's wonderful plan of redemption? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it appears for time and is gone. The tragic consequences of Adam's and Eve's decision to disobey God are with us yet as we are fallen creatures in this world. Unable by human effort, unable by human works ever to regain the paradise that was lost, but able to receive the grace of God which offers us paradise regained. Oh, what a wonder. Oh, what a joy. And may it fill our hearts with fullness and praise to God today. May this be something that sets the tone for our new and coming week. God bless you. Thank you again for listening.
God keep you and bless you this week.